0: This is Payments Innovation. We take you deep into the DNA of digital finance with some of the most respected voices in the industry.
1: Let's dive in.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Payments Innovation podcast. I'm your host, Kara Hayward. Really excited to have two exciting speakers today. Uh, Dan Roseberry, who's our VP of Global FinTech Partnerships at Visa, and Emily Mann, who is an investor at Redpoint Ventures. Welcome both. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So today, our topic is going to be around global money movement and some of the trends that we're seeing in this space. So I'll start with Emily. Um, How are we seeing new payments emerge and gain traction? And what are some of the barriers you're seeing to scale right now around global money movement? You know, over
1: the last five years or so, uh, the ways to pay have just accelerated and exploded. in terms of the types of innovation that we're seeing in payments globally. Early on, you saw a big wave in mobile payment um, with mobile wallets, QR codes, and this took over particularly in emerging markets where you didn't have as high of a credit or debit penetration like you do uh, here in the US. Um, And then that moved on. I think, you know, once you saw the pandemic happen, you saw a lot of these, you know, NFC or, um, contactless payments really start to take off as well, um, especially following along with the trend of, you know, e-commerce or digital commerce uh, as people weren't interacting in person so much. Uh, I think there's kind of two big barriers to scale that we tend to see a lot. Uh, I'd say broadly bucketed as the first being technology and the second just being inertia. One quick example is, you know. of our banking systems are still built on COBOL, which is a programming language from the 60s. So technology is one area that I think there's a lot of opportunity to be modernized and is going to be really important to driving the ability for these new ways to pay to proliferate. And then second is just inertia, right? I think there needs to be a forcing function or some way that the new ways to pay are 10 times better than the old ways. Um, to get people to switch over. I think, you know, when it comes to B2B payments, there's still a way larger majority than you would expect that's still being transacted through cash and checks. The pandemic was a big accelerant for a lot of these new ways uh, that kind of forced people out of the habit, but there's still a long, long way to go.
0: I think in a lot of the mostly developed markets in particular, there's so much tech that has been patchwork together It's a lot of abstraction layers that have been built on top of it, kind of those legacy rails, let's call it. I do think at some point, we will see a migration to some of these real-time rails. But I think for a large amount of the kind of volume, especially the large kind of enterprise and B2B volume, um, but even a lot of consumer, it's not necessarily seen as broken. It's seen as possibly suboptimal. And then there's been enough technology and players that have emerged over the years to remove a lot of that, say, complexity or sub-optimization from a lot of the, the end users and the clients. So I think it will take enough factors that come into play, be it kind of cost factors, or be it kind of new use cases that are emerging that really aren't able to be supported by kind of the legacy infrastructure, to provide a, enough of a forcing function, because the switching costs on payment rails, especially for large players and for banks, is massive, and unfortunately, kind of the world we live in and kind of the incentives, especially in a lot of the developed markets, um, tend to be more short-term focused. So it's really difficult to get that that ten-year project through the budget cycle, ten years consecutively, to keep it on track.
2: That's really insightful. I couldn't agree more. I think. Uh, on that point, you know what we see a lot of is a lot of players out there that have built to that infrastructure layer, but not enough. Not enough that have kind of really taken a look at a deep vertical and said, "How do we? How do we create a platform that takes sort of that suboptimal experience from the infrastructure level?" and builds a lot of the, the functionality. And so almost like the global bass concept, right? Not necessarily making every player in the market have to build to the deepest level of the infrastructure, of the global infrastructure. And so I'm definitely excited to see more emerge in that space that's really focused on a particular segment. If I could just follow up on that for a
1: second. Uh, Dan, I know you and I have talked about this a lot, but I think one major portion of the inertia piece is not only is there consumer inertia and adoption inertia, but you know, there's so many providers and people that are at different points in the value chain along making a payment happen, that, you know, there might be one one person in that chain that's very innovative. I mean, I know Visa has come up with a lot of, you know, amazing new features and capabilities. But in order for that technology to then get pushed out to general availability, there has to be so much that happens at each layer in the stack and at each point in the step. So I think that that's one of the barriers that we're seeing today, and slowly over time, as Kara you mentioned, some of these modernize, we're going to see that reinvention. But right now, you know, I think the the buck isn't being passed necessarily on with uh, to to end users.
2: Couldn't agree more on that one. So we we discussed a little bit about how. Um, Global money movement is still a bit disjointed, right? There's not one person really providing that full value chain uh, from from top to bottom. Um, if we start to see this shift and we improve upon this in the next few years, how do we think this will change the world? <laughs> um, Dan, we'll start with you on this one.
0: World, world change based on new payment rails. Um, no, I think consumer expectations continue to shift as well as kind of the needs of particularly small businesses, but businesses in general. So, if you think about just what's happening with kind of future work and globalization of um, everything from supply chains to to personnel and and to consumers, kind of consumers are interacting even across borders um, more regularly. So, think about kind of expectations for um, kind of earned wage access, early wage access. Think about the ongoing kind of cash flow and working capital needs of, of small businesses. I think a lot of the kind of shortfalls of financial services today aren't fully meeting those needs. And that's where I get really excited about real-time payment rails. I think a lot of the discussion around RTP is more domestically focused today. So it's, it's a lot of it's been driven by either private parties or governments that are kind of pushing towards kind of establishment of these new rails and kind of regulation is gonna be a, a key factor um, in terms of making sure that what's adopted is actually um, A, compliant and B, doesn't introduce new kind of fraud or risks into the ecosystem. The ability to move money in real time um, across borders is becoming more and more important, which is where we get excited about some of the things we're up to at Visa and working closely with Currency Cloud as well. So you can imagine a a small business um, that can receive funds, say, from their clients or customers in, in closer to real time, or maybe they're suppliers um, or their their vendors are able to float or provide some sort of working capital to them that would allow them to pay their workers early or um, and it also may may allow them to pass through some of those um, some cost savings to their their customers and, and drive kind of a, a a cyclical effect
2: thanks Dan uh, Emily anything to add to that topic gosh you know what's funny Cara? I think
1: that actually the future of payments is almost kind of going back to making it easy and instant to pay again, like we had in the past. So I think the future of money movement is faster, cheaper, more real time with instant liquidity provided. And I think in order to make that a reality, that means we need faster decisioning around risk and fraud. I was just looking at like, you know, transaction volumes of real time payments domestically focused here in the U.S. But I think in Q4, it was something like $23 That went over the RTP rails, which is a lot, but compared to ACH, which is 19 trillion, right? Like it's a small drop in the bucket, and so I think we're just still such a long ways off um, from those instant global money flows that there's a lot of like exciting opportunity to be captured here.
0: And I'll just add to kind of the things that are needed in order. Uh, especially from a risk and compliance standpoint, to start to migrate into new rails. Um, I think collaboration. So collaboration has always been key across the financial ecosystem. Like none of this is done in silos or in a box, and a lot of even regulation is forcing kind of flags and reporting um, that can be leveraged across multiple parties. I think that becomes more and more important when we talk about real time and cross-border across platforms, and across use cases. Otherwise, we know fraudsters will just kind of hop from channel to channel, account to account, market to market. So I think things like device tagging, -tagging, um, geotagging, behavioral analytics and biometrics, just getting better, kind of more data um, into the decisioning process on any given transaction and account opening will be increasingly important. I we're continuing to push that through a lot of their, our standards bodies work.
2: It's so true, and I and I really do think that is lacking in the global money movement space today. I think when you look at some of the domestic work that's been done through collaboration, it's it's really impressive, right? Emily, you mentioned the, the slow adoption of RTP in the U.S. and and that that could be a whole other podcast episode. Um, and then, but you're seeing some explosive adoption around the world, like in India and Brazil and some other places. Um, how, how do you see this going? I guess my, my point being here, do we think that the, um, is it better for folks to focus on sort of that uh, country by country adoption of RTP and then the effort being around the connector of all those local RTP movements or should we be focusing on more of like a global standard of money movement? There have been
1: a handful of countries that have rolled out some sort of an RTP scheme, right? And some have been more successful. Than others. Off the top of my head, UPI and in India and PIX in Brazil are kind of two of the stalwarts of, you know, have seen explosive growth and adoption beyond, I think, anyone's wildest imaginations just in kind of a, a couple of years. Um, and then on the other hand, you have some countries uh, in which, you know, things have been a little bit slower on the uptake. And unfortunately, we're it's still too early days for us to start thinking about global standards of interoperability. Although I do think that, you know, 20, 30 years down the line, that is where we are going to go, and we're starting to see early signs of that already. But more focused on, I think, learning lessons from the rollouts of RTP that we've seen around the world, what has worked, what hasn't worked, what are what kinds of incentives um, need to exist in order to kind of force the instant adoption and creation of what I think is important is beyond the rail itself, the layer of infrastructure that exists to support that rail and make it widely available. One of the reasons people are so excited about Fed now is there's a little bit of a barrier it, it, to adoption of RTP uh, by the clearinghouse because of some of the liquidity requirements by the banks that are participating, as well as, you know, just I think. There's a big bank, small bank kind of conflict relative to uh, ownership of the consortium, right? And so as long as the incentives and structure is put into place to make this broadly available, but first to, I think, regulated financial institutions, but then who are the connectors that are making that broadly available and easy to build upon is going to be critical for the next, you know, decade.
2: Thanks for that. Yeah. Dan, anything to add there?
0: I think we've also seen different approaches, like even just taking the EPI example versus PIX. PIX has been mostly driven by kind of government regulatory bodies. EPI has taken more of a, we're going to push out a standard, but we're going to certify certain third parties that can come in, like Paytm and Google. I can kind of build on top of these standards, capture the customers and facilitate like that front end and those experiences that are built on those new rails. I think you are going to see kind of different go to market depending on what the existing infrastructure is and kind of really how crowded these spaces are, I think. I think an approach that looks closer to um EPI for markets like like Europe and the US and Canada might Might make more sense just because of um, how many kind of players there are. So
2: I'd like to dig into that a little bit more in terms of where do you think the innovation will start happening around data and fraud? Do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? Um, and, And any other sort of insights on that topic?
0: I talked about kind of the importance of collaboration and we're seeing a lot of exciting kind of attention, investment, innovation, everything from open finance, alternative data sources to unique approaches to tackling fraud, whether it's in a consortium-based approach, whether it's leveraging AIML, whether it's leveraging any sort of signals that can be extracted from devices and kind of bringing all of those all those pieces together as signals um, to tackle fraud. And then linked to this, but maybe not directly, but like having the right kind of governance and controls in place and liability. Who are the parties? Like there, there are multiple parties in any, any given transaction so each of them should take some level of responsibility for um, attempting to mitigate that fraud.
2: That is definitely an area that, that could see some improvement. And having that sort of, um, yeah, the traffic hop of payments, um, <laughs> it could be really potentially helpful, assuming that there are tools to help them implement it, right? Because I think that's always the issue is like, well, you can ask people to do a million things, but if they can't actually build it into their processes and, you know, that becomes a problem. So uh, well, anyway, it becomes
0: um, one more hurdle, right? We talk about kind of switching costs and we talk about kind of the, what the, what that adoption curve looks like. So can, can the move to real-time payments come with best in class um, kind of risk and fraud controls and kind of governance compliance? Um, if it can have all those things that could actually help the adoption curve but also could cut the other way.
2: Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Emily, anything to add on this topic? And we've seen an explosion of fintech tools
1: and companies emerge to help address this. The the question that's always been on my mind is, you know, which player in the ecosystem has the leverage or the ability in order to drive that adoption of these next generations of tools? Of course, if you're relying on, the system that you put in place 10 years ago when people mostly walked into a branch and showed you their ID card, like that's not gonna cut it anymore. But those replacement cycles, both from a technological and operational perspective, take a lot of time, money and training. And so how do you like financially incentivize people across the ecosystem to, you know, start getting up to standard and start utilizing some of the new tools that exist out there. I feel like Visa has done some really interesting things in the past with the, you know, incentivizing the adoption of things like 3DS or different new sorts of encryption. Um, But, you know, where do you see that buck starting?
0: Where we need to authenticate or even what we've pushed out with kind of the card now present framework, um, that kind of touches up, up, upon things like kind of economics and liability, et cetera. That all stems to, are, is there additional data that can be sent in the message? Are you mm-hmm. doing everything you can to understand that consumer, do the ID and verification kind of in real time, and implement those kind of best in class tools? We're pretty excited even about some of the emerging kind of technology in terms of authentication, mm-hmm. digital identity, and that's been um, definitely a focus area for us recently.
2: Yeah, I think the more investment we can see in those businesses to start thinking global from the outset, if you look at the opportunity, if you start thinking global from the outset, there is not there are not a lot of players in the space who are saying, I'm looking at identity from multiple different countries or adopting compliance standards that take into account that money is moving all over the world. And so I think there's a massive, massive opportunity there for someone to say, I'm the ID verification or KYC or AML, whatever part you're taking for glo- truly global businesses that are global from the outset. So I'm, I'm excited to watch this space for sure. <laughs> um, last comment here. So this is going to be looking a little further out, I think, but lots of chat recently about CBDCs, right? And the potential value for global money movement with those. Um, how far, like, like it's so exciting, right, to see all the development and like the great minds that are going to, to CBDCs and the, the, all the potential use cases. But at the end of the day, again, it's about collaboration, standardization, and a lot of it has to do with the on-ramp and off-ramp piece of banks feeling okay with having some part of being part of the blockchain. Do we think this will provide value someday for global money movement? And where do you think maybe it would be in, in terms of first steps? Um, Emily, we'll start with you on this one.
1: Oh, gosh, this is a meaty topic. Um, All of this comes from a shared vision, right, for uh, a future in which payments are global and essentially frictionless and invisible to the end user, because at the end of the day, like making a payment is it's a point of friction. I believe that you're going to see the, the fastest innovation come from some of the developing nations where they don't have existing ecosystem in place just because it is so much easier to go from like zero to something than to go from something that exists to replacing that with something else. We here at Redpoint have invested in a fair number of blockchain technologies and we're really excited for the future. Of what that could look like and how this interacts with the payments world, I think. Um, but we're still very much early days in figuring out what that might look like.
2: It's still a bit of the Wild West. <laughs> very much so, the Wild West. Yeah. <laughs> makes it fun to follow, though, right? Dan, 100%. Any... Dan, any comments on this one?
0: I agree with all that. I also see um, kind of CBDCs potentially as adding both a kind of security and fraud and and kind of transparency layer to the financial ecosystem, they could be leveraged in lieu of digital cash today. And um, we saw a little bit of this, and we can just continue to see this. We've been pushing, for example, to replace the 16-digit pans that are that are stored with various uh, merchants, platforms, et cetera to have those swap out for tokens that don't have transaction direct transaction value of things like cryptogram validation etc so almost closer to some of the kind of tokenization technology we see with with cryptograms and um in blockchains i think there's value in a lot of that the challenge is um, until there's again enhanced utility um, and a level of um, kind of interoperability of that new form factor of of digital money until it has kind of not only the same level of um, kind of functionality and acceptance globally, um, but additional features that'll that'll help with switching costs. I think this will be a nice to have project.
2: One interesting trend too, that I think before maybe CBDCs and it could provide potentially some learnings for the adoption of CBDCs is, is actually just the ability for more people to have access to stable currencies like wallets with USD or wallets with other sort of stable currencies and providing that access to folks who don't necessarily have that um, through their normal banking channels. Um, So that's, I think, an interesting space to watch. Great. Well, thank you, Emily. Thank you, Dan. Really appreciate the time today and uh, excited for our listeners to hear what you have to say about global money movement. Thanks for joining us here
0: on Payments Innovation. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas about the show.
1: Connect with Currency Cloud on Twitter or LinkedIn to find out more. And remember to subscribe by your favorite podcast player. Until next time.